Matthew chapter 6. I have to admit that there's uh, been a number of times since I started doing the Q&A where during the week I'm preparing and I think to myself, why, why in the world did I ever agree to do this? Uh, I had one of those moments this week, but uh, we'll, as always, muddle through, and uh, at the end I'll shrug my shoulders and say that was the best I can do. All right, question. Please discuss what Jesus meant by, quote, thy kingdom come in Matthew 6.10. So let's begin in Matthew 6. <clears throat> the uh, question is about a line that occurs in this model prayer Jesus gives here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, he's given some instructions about prayer, how not to pray. And in verse 9 he says, pray then like this. So here's how he says to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So Jesus here, this is his foundational sermon where he's laying out the priorities of his kingdom. Jesus has arrived, officially arrived on the scene, begun to, to preach publicly about who he is and about how God is making good on his promises, and how God's plans for the world are beginning to come to fruition through his Son. And as a part of that, he teaches about prayer. Uh, he begins in verse, uh, uh, verse 5, talking about how not to pray. First of all, don't pray as a public performance like the hypocrite Pharisees do. Don't pray like the Gentiles do with their mindless uh, bleeding, with their over and over incessant um, ceremonial... Um, Wrote, uh, wrote repetitions. Don't pray like that. Instead, he says, verse 9, do pray like this. And as you read this prayer, it's quite a simple and short prayer. It honors God. It honors God's will. It asks for the most basic of physical needs. It requests forgiveness for past sins, and then it requests help in future against future temptation. In other places in the Gospels, Jesus will answer a question about, Lord, can, how should we pray? Basically, his answer is to give, again, this is his model. So the question is on the meaning of verse 10, specifically the phrase, your kingdom come. Jesus is saying that in prayer, we should express the desire that God's kingdom come, and along with that, that God's will be done on earth every bit as much as in heaven. God's will is done in heaven. Imagine how much God's will is done in heaven. And now our prayer is that God's will be done on earth as much as that. So the question is, what does it mean to pray that God's kingdom come? Is that something we should be praying? Uh, I had an interaction with someone once where they strongly insisted we should never pray this. We should never pray that the kingdom has come because the kingdom has already come. So is that something we should pray if we should pray it, what should we mean by that? What should we think about whenever we pray that? Should we even pray it? Or, to, you know, the other alternative would be, well, Jesus gave his disciples a prayer that would only be appropriate for them to pray for about the next three years. And then after that, you're not allowed to pray that part. So, in answering those questions, here's my teaser from this morning. You know, to answer the question about what this little phrase means, like kingdom come... We're going to be forced to answer some much more fundamental and so much bigger questions than that, like, what is the kingdom of God? And here's, I think, the pressing issue of this question. Is Jesus' kingdom present or future? Is it present? Is it already here? Has it already arrived? 
or is it still future? Is it not here yet? Because that's going to shape how we answer this question. So those two questions, one, what is the kingdom? And two, is the kingdom present or future? Those are inextricably tied together. How you define kingdom has everything to do with whether or not you think it's arrived yet or it's not yet arrived. So just let me give the, one of the most extreme positions we could possibly take would be that of the premillennialist. And the premillennialist will say that everything about the kingdom is still future. Every little thing about the kingdom is still future. The narrative of the premillennialist is that Jesus showed up the first time in, in the beginning of the first century. He showed up to dethrone Caesar and establish his political kingdom. That hit a road, roadblock when uh, there was a conspiracy against him and the crucifixion. And so Jesus rose from the dead and he left promising to return to make good on the stuff he was supposed to do the first time. And Revelation, the book of Revelation, they say, is a roadmap for the future thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. So in that telling, absolutely everything about the kingdom is future. That would be one extreme position you could take. The other extreme position we could take, which I think is often formed in reaction to that bad misreading of the New Testament, is to say, no, um, everything about the kingdom is not future. No, everything about the kingdom is present, past and present. Jesus already established his kingdom. All the kingdom promises have been fulfilled in the church after Jesus was raised and ascended and then and then after Pentecost when the church began. I've heard, heard the point made in those terms that basically when you see the kingdom, you should think of the church. The church was established in Acts 2, therefore the kingdom is established. So that would be another position. It's all future, and, say, and the other person says, no, it's all present, all past and present. So let me go ahead and tell you what my approach is to this. Um, I've hit on, I've, I was looking back through things I've said about the kingdom in the past, and I've hit on this a number of times, never hit on like this, but we come across it in passages, we come across it in Bible class. Um, but my answer to the question is really going to be built around reestablishing, I think, a faithful biblical tension on this question, a faithful biblical tension on this question. To be faithful to the Bible, to take all the data into account, there needs to be a tension in this question. On the one hand, it is right to say the kingdom is already present. Jesus' kingdom is present. There are many texts that make that clear. We're going to hit on some of them, but here's just one quick hitter, an obvious one. Luke 9.1, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And so that is a statement in which Jesus says to people standing there, some of you are still going to be alive when this thing shows up with power. We should say, we should affirm, Jesus is currently sitting on his throne at the right hand of God. Jesus is king. He is ruler. There is an already aspect to Jesus' kingdom. He's already king. And yet, if we keep looking in the New Testament, there, are also, there is also a forward-looking aspect to Jesus' kingdom. King Jesus has not done everything he plans on doing in his kingdom. There is still a future day coming when things like this will happen, when evil is judged, when righteousness will be vindicated, when Satan will be defeated once and for all, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord and King, and God's people will dwell with their Father forever. If anything of, of that has anything to do with the kingdom of God, and I am certain it does, there is a future aspect to Jesus' kingdom as well. Those future events are spoken of in the New Testament as kingdom coming events. So, my, my answer, there, this is a huge question. I have to restrict myself in some way. It's somewhat arbitrary, but I need it for my own sanity. 
Um, my answer is going to concentrate on things Jesus says in the Gospels about the kingdom of God. One, that's where it's spoken of most often. And I was surprised when I looked through many of these things that this question actually is answered in this direct way, in a pretty direct way within the Gospels, that this very question is on the mouth of the apostles, and Jesus answers it in some direct ways. And so I just want to uh, walk, walk through you with that. So I have three points, three ways in which I lay this out. So let's begin with some passages which emphasize the already, the present, past and present aspect of Jesus' kingdom, um, the already inaugurated kingdom. So Luke 17, let's go there. Luke 17. So in Luke 17, this is uh, the beginning of a parable that's really meant to dispel this misconception about the kingdom, one of the very things we're talking about. Luke 17 and verse uh, 20. Luke 17 and verse 20. So again, just notice the question is about the kingdom of God and when it arrives and how you know it arrives. This is Luke 17 and verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. That's really on the nose. That's what we're wondering about. When asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, Jesus, answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So Jesus here is correcting a misunderstanding of the kingdom that's implied in the, in the Pharisee question. The, implied, the implication the Pharisees are working with is that when the kingdom came, it would come with these observable signs that would be unmistakable and, and huge. And we know this, we see this in, in the writings of this time. The popular expectation of most Jews, people like the Pharisees, was when the Messiah returned, Rome would be overturned, Israel would be vindicated once and for all, the new David, the new Davidic kingdom in Jerusalem would be reestablished, the political kingdom. This was generally the expectation of the Israelites. And so I think a lot of that is behind their question when it would come. And you're talking this big game, Jesus, about king, so where's all that stuff that, that we're expecting? And Jesus' answer in verses 20 and 21 is, no, it's not coming in a way that can be observed like that. He doesn't answer their question of when it comes head on. He simply says, here's how you know, here's how you won't know it's coming. It can't be, it's not coming in a way that can be observed like that. There is a mystery. There will be a mystery about the coming of the kingdom. And then he says, the kingdom is here in your midst, without those kind of huge observable signs. I think this is what Jesus is getting at. The kingdom is here. Here's how you know the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here because I am here. When he says this, this line in verse 21, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, some translations have things like the kingdom of God is within you, which makes it sound like it's you know inside me. There might be a sense in which that's true, but I don't think that's what he's saying here. He's not talking about the kingdom being inside of them. He's talking about... He's talking about himself. He's saying his own coming means the kingdom is coming. The fact that Jesus is there is the sign that the kingdom is here. And so it's in the midst of you. The fact that I am here means that the kingdom is here. That's what he's saying. Go with me to Luke 11 very quickly. <clears throat> Luke 11. This is another clear statement about the present reality of the kingdom. The present reality of the kingdom. Luke 11. This is about verse 20. The Pharisees here, this is the story where they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Uh, that Jesus does this sign is undeniable. No one can say you didn't do it. Everyone just saw it. 
And so what they do in their hardness of heart is attribute his power to Satan. Jesus has a very different interpretation of what's happened. And he takes them to task about their, uh, about their hardness of heart and their faulty logic. But then he says this in verse 20. Here's how you should read this sign. Luke 11 and verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus says, when I do battle with Satan by the Spirit of God, and when I begin to plunder the strong man's house, when I show myself stronger than Satan, when I'm freeing people from Satan's bondage, what you are saying is the power of God at work. The kingdom of God is coming, and you know that through this sign, through this work. And so this is a statement about the present reality of the kingdom. We could add a dozen other examples. When Jesus arrives on the scene in the New Testament, he unambiguously claims to be the king and that to be ushering in the kingdom. And so, for example, just run through very quickly. When he appoints the 12 apostles, what he is doing is signaling his reconstituting of Israel, the new Israel. The restoration has begun around a new 12, not the 12 patriarchs, but the 12 apostles. And they are to be a vanguard for the new Israel. And so Luke twenty two twenty nine, I assign to you, he says to the apostles, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, we're doing it. We're reconstituting this, this Israel, this new kingdom. And here's how you know you're, you're here with me at the beginning. In Luke 13, Jesus quotes from Isaiah, and he announces along with Isaiah, Isaiah says, here is a sign that you know that Israel's Messiah has come. He says, Luke 13, 29, people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. What Jesus does here, he points at what's happening around him, at all those gathering around him, and he says, what Isaiah said would happen when Israel's true king showed up is what's happening right now. In Luke 4, Jesus preaches at his hometown synagogue. He reads from Isaiah about the signs that would accompany the arrival of the Messiah, of Israel's new king. And when he finishes, he says this in Luke 4.21, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He announces the king and kingdom have arrived. God's favor and mercy are at hand, not in the distant future, but in the present moment. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Or these summary statements of the entire message of Jesus in one sentence. Matthew summarizes all of Jesus preaching this way. Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's at hand. It's right here. Mark's version. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1.15. Everything Jesus says is centered on the kingdom of God and its imminent arrival. So here's the first point. There is an already aspect of the kingdom. Plant that in the ground. If by kingdom you mean Israel's Messiah and Israel's true king has returned, he has asserted his power over Satan, he has reconstituted Israel around the twelve apostles, he is dying as a sacrifice for sin, he'll be raised in victory over Satan and death. If by kingdom you mean these events, the events of the gospel, Jesus coming and doing all of this, we should resolutely say the kingdom has come in some real sense. It has been inaugurated. When the kingdom arrives, when the kingdom starts showing signs, when the king starts teaching and calling people to obey, there's something kingdom happening here. So that's number one. Now, number two, let's talk about the not yet consummated kingdom. The kingdom has already been inaugurated, it has arrived in some sense, but it is not yet here in its fullness. 
So Luke 19, turn with me here. This is not the end of the story because there are other texts and other proclamations from the mouth of Jesus which make clear that all the ways in which Jesus' kingdom will assert itself, all the things Jesus' kingdom will be and do, these have not come to fruition yet. Jesus is king. But it's not recognized on every inch of his creation yet, is it? There are plenty of people who deny his kingship, who ignore it. There are plenty of things in which the king still has left to do. There is still a future look to the plans of God in the kingdom. So this is Luke 19 and verse 11. Luke 19 and verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they, the apostles, supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, this is an interesting verse. They suppose the kingdom of God is about to appear immediately. Jesus is nearing Jerusalem here, and the apostles begin to sense, rightly, they begin to sense Jesus' work is about to come to a climax. That's true. But they don't yet understand what that work is. I think they have in their head some idea of what that work should be. Um, They think Jesus is about to make his move. He's about to capitalize on his popularity. He's about to cast out the corrupt Jewish leadership once and for all. He's about to lead the revolution to reestablish David's kingdom. That was the common conception that the Messiah, when he came, he would return once and for all at the end of history. And he would make good on every promise God ever made. He would set right every wrong that existed in the world And it would all be buttoned up when the Messiah came back. That was the notion. Well, what follows is Jesus' answer to this expectation that the kingdom would appear immediately. And he tells a parable that makes clear the kingdom is not coming in that way, and it's not coming in the sense that they want it to at this moment. This is verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom they had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. He said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your mind has made five minas. said to him, are you, to be, you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Lord, here is your mind, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said these words to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And he said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. They said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And then verse 27 gives the end of the story. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So there's a lot going on here, but he tells a parable here, and I think the uh, so what of this parable is that the kingdom is not coming in this sense and in this time that they expect it to. So the story unfolds about the departure of this nobleman. He goes away to receive a kingdom, and the way that his servants conduct themselves in his absence indicates their level of trust in his word that he will return and their allegiance to him. 
and their stewardship of what he left them with. And then the end of the story is the return of the nobleman, and he judges each of his servants for how they did with what he left them, and for those who rebelled against him in his absence, he judges and he deals with them. So verse 11 says, they supposed the kingdom was to appear immediately and that the kingdom was, that would appear would meet all their expectations. But the purpose of the parable is really to dispel some of that, to underscore the coming absence of Jesus in which his servants would be called on to remain faithful, to be stewards of that which he left them with until finally the king returns to judge. And when he does, he will judge how allegiant and how good a stewards his servants were. The nobleman is the king, the ruler of all these servants in this whole story. There's a sense in which he's always king. But there is a delay in the story before he returns once and for all to assert his rule over them once and for all and to judge those who did not want me to reign over them in my absence, verse 27. So in the story, the king is gone, and in his absence, you can deny his kingship. People did. They didn't like it. They rebelled against it. They didn't act like he was king. You can do that in this interim moment. He is king, but there are plenty of people who will not treat him that way. But then he comes back, and when he comes back, he will judge those based on how, how well they submitted to his kingship. I think the point of this parable is there is something about Jesus' kingdom which is still future. He's preparing them for his departure. Jesus came to establish the kingdom, but then he would leave. He would have to come again to button up all those, all those loose ends. So that's one example. Jesus said, I think, a number of other things that emphasize a forward posture to his kingdom. Again, I think it's right to say Jesus' kingdom is here. We must say Jesus is on his throne, yet there is still a forward posture to many of the things Jesus says about his kingdom. This is uh, Luke 9, 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It's a verse about how Jesus will come again, but this time he won't come again humble in a manger. He will come in glory. He will come to assort, assert his authority. He will come to sort out, to judge, and everyone will be known for what he is. The constant sayings of Jesus like, you know, many who are first will be last, and the last who are first, the humble will be exalted, the exalted will be humbled. All these statements of Jesus portend a future day of judgment. He speaks, he speaks explicitly about it. There is a present reality now, even with Jesus' kingdom come, in which true Israel state is not yet obvious. But there's coming a day when there'll be no mistaking who's who. There'll be no mistaking that the kingdom is real and that Jesus is king when the day it arrives asserts itself over every inch of creation. When Jesus comes back for the second time, his reign will be undeniable. All will be judged based on the response to his reign. And that's really the punchline of a lot of the parables, some of which we're about to talk about. Now let me just throw in one more thing here before we go on to our third point. Lest you think, sometimes this comes up, lest we think, well, all this stuff we're talking about is in the Gospels. All this stuff about maybe there's something about the kingdom that's still future. That's all in the Gospels. That all happens before the ascension of Jesus. That all happens before Pentecost. That happens before Acts 2, before the establishment of the church. So lest we think that, let me just give one other example. There are post-Pentecost texts which speak much the same way about a future aspect to Jesus' kingdom. So at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul here is talking about the last day, the return of Jesus. He says we're looking forward to the return of Jesus 
In verse 52, he's talking about the last trumpet. Verse 57, he's talking about the final victory of Christ. Well, in verse 50, I want you to notice what he calls this. He calls this the arrival or the inheritance of the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. Paul is writing after Pentecost here. And yet he looks forward to a day in which the kingdom is here in a full way, in a consummated way. He clearly means here, he has a future look, which clearly means something other than just church. Something final happens when the kingdom comes at the return of Jesus, when the resurrection of his people happens. Jesus is already king. He's already ruling his church. He's already ruling our lives, his people, the lives of his people. 1 Corinthians 15 says there is also a sense in which his rule has not yet arrived in its fullness, and we are not yet what we will one day be. He has not yet asserted his authority over all of creation like he will on that day when every single knee will bow. So, let's uh, end by just sort of looking uh, head on at this tension-filled present, because this is the moment we live in. We live in a moment that's really a, a, a strange a strange era in history in between the two comings of Jesus, a time of tension. So the kingdom has come in some sense, and yet the kingdom is still future in some sense. This is a puzzling thought. It puzzled the Pharisees. It was one of the things they couldn't make heads or tails of. I think this is essentially what took John the Baptist off guard in uh, Matthew 11. Jesus shows up, and he's absolutely certain this is the Lamb of God here to take away the sins of the world. Here is the Messiah And then here comes Jesus sort of dragging this out, not riding a wave of popularity, Jesus beginning to be um, rejected, persecuted, suffering. And and then he has to ask, are you the one or should we look for another? Expectations are being being overturned. You know, it's this idea that here Jesus is the king. It causes one crowd in Galilee to want to throw Jesus off a cliff, this tension. It causes another crowd in John 6 to want to make him king. Right? People are not quite sure what to do with this. It baffles Pilate when, when he has to work out, okay, they all say you're king, and, he say, and you say you're king, and yet here you are not fighting and not calling your servants to fight. What kind of king are you? It left the apostles confused and hopeless between the crucifixion and the resurrection. So let's just nail down. We need to think about this. Do you realize what the big surprise was of Jesus coming? We've beat around it, but let's, this is what the big surprise was. The near universal idea of Israel was that when the Messiah returned, he would return once and for all. And I have to be honest, I can understand why they might think that. If you just have an Old Testament and you're looking at these promises of what God will do through, through his servant and how he'll save Israel, and how he'll make good on his promises and all of this, it wouldn't be obvious to me that, oh yeah, that means that he's going to come, but he's going to leave and he's going to come back. I, I'm not sure I could have seen it. The idea was the Messiah would come at the end of history. For them, the Messiah's arrival, that's the end of the world. The Messiah comes at the end of history to cement God's rule over all creation once and for all, to judge sin once and for all. Again, if I'm a first century Jew, I'm pretty sure that's what I would have assumed along with pretty much everyone else. The unexpected thing, the big surprise was, what really happened when the Messiah came was he didn't come at the end of history. He came smack dab in the middle of history. That was the astounding surprise. He came smack dab in the middle of history. He came and he offered salvation. He taught who he was. He taught how to live. He offers salvation to those who accept. 
But he waits. He waits to enact final judgment. He waits to end the world. He waits to end history. To put it another way, they expected the Messiah to come once, when in reality the plan was for the Messiah to come twice. He comes the first time offering salvation, and he comes a second time enacting judgment. So what this means about the Messiah's kingdom is it's a little more complicated than either having to choose it's all present or it's all future. It's more complicated than that. Because the true answer is there's a sense in which it's both. The Messiah returns to assert his rule over creation, to establish his kingdom. He comes to do that in two stages, not one. He comes the first time as a suffering servant to atone for sin. He invites all to partake in it and to become a part of this kingdom that his coming inaugurates. But he comes a second time in the clouds of heaven with power and glory to judge and to save, to defeat Satan once and for all, to defeat death, defeat death once and for all. The second time Jesus comes, his kingship and his kingdom will be undeniable. There will be no denying who he is. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, we are told repeatedly. So let's go to one more, one more set of passages, Matthew 13. Because there's actually a series of parables about this very tension in this mystery. The tension of living in between the two comings of Jesus. Jesus really hits on this a good bit. And hits on this unexpected aspect of his, king, of his kingdom. This is Matthew 13 and verse 11 to get started. We're here in the middle of, um, in between the telling of the parable of the sower and the interpretation of it. And he has this... Um, conversation with his disciples about why he teaches in parables and what it is he wants them to understand. He says things like this in Matthew 13 and verse 11. So they ask in verse 10, why, why do you speak in parables? Verse 11, he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, to the rest of the crowd who go on and, and forget about what he said, to them it has not been given. This is verse 16. Verse 16, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see, and hear what you hear and did not hear. So what Jesus is saying here is that you are seeing the fulfillment of things your fathers longed to see. The kingdom has come, but there is still a great mystery about it. The mystery is not everyone is recognizing that the kingdom has come. Not everyone is bowing before the rightful king. If the Messiah comes at the end of history, that's how it works, right? He comes to judge. He comes to sort out, and everyone knows who he is. But he comes, and not everyone knows who he is. If you want to deny him, you can. If you want to listen to his parables and say, that was just a silly story, you can do that. Look, plenty of people did. The kingdom came, but not everyone expected it. Not everyone wanted it. It's here, but the way it's here is mysterious. And the parables of Matthew 13 are about this, are about this mystery, this tension, so this is verse 18. Here then the parable of the sower. He's going to explain the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, the announcement, here comes, here comes your king. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And he keeps on. Oh, man, I'm not going to rehash the parable. You know it. But this is a parable about what people do when they hear tell of the arrived kingdom. Four things can happen at that word, at that announcement. Here's your king. One, Satan can, snatch, Satan can snatch it. Two, the heat of trouble can torch it. Three, the thorns of care can choke it. Or four, it will bear fruit in good soil when someone believes it. The mystery here is that the word of the kingdom, 
the gospel of the kingdom, the announcement that we talked about this morning in Isaiah 52, that our God reigns, when the word of the kingdom comes, it's not sweeping the whole world. Not everyone believes it. It's here with power to save. But you know, about three quarters of the kingdom preaching seems to fall on deaf ears. Three quarters of the soil are not good. This was not what anyone expected to happen when the Messiah arrived. When he said, hey, the kingdom is at hand, our God reigns. And people shrugged their shoulders. That's what they're wrestling with. The kingdom is here. That's what this parable says. The kingdom is here, but not everyone bows before the king. Not all the soil is ready to accept it. This is verse 24, another parable of the kingdom. He put another parable before them, saying, verse 24, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go gather them? He said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers. Gather the weeds first. Bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is a parable of the kingdom, and I'm not going to interpret it. We'll let Jesus do that in verse 36. He left the crowds and went into the house. The disciples came to him saying, explain this parable of the weeds of the field. So that's the parable we just read. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father He who has ears, let him hear. It's a parable about how sons of the kingdom and sons of the evil one are side by side in the field, side by side in the world. And that's not going to be worked out for a long time. They're going to grow together. They're going to mingle. And it'll probably be unpleasant for that good grain in that field. A lot more unpleasant than it would be if they went ahead and were weeded out. But they're going to be allowed to grow together. Until a day of judgment, verse 38. Notice verse 41 again. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. This is the mystery of the kingdom. It's a kingdom that exists for some period of time in the world with the righteous and the evil side by side. Until a day in which that kingdom becomes something else. Until that kingdom is consummated. And when that happens, when God does that sorting and he does the judging of the the weeds and when he does the saving of the wheat, the consummation in verse 43 is described as the righteous shining like the sun in his kingdom. That That is not happening right now. That is not happening yet. That is a future promise that takes place in his kingdom. See, this parable is about the tension. The kingdom comes. The kingdom is there. It comes, but then it really comes. The kingdom is possessed by God's people. 
but it is not yet fully inherited. It is possessed with great travail. It is possessed alongside some really evil people. And so the kingdom comes, but there still awaits a future day when separation, judgment, and full consummation comes. One more example, and then we've got to go back to Matthew 6, the actual verse of the question. Uh, this is verse 31. Matthew um, 13 and verse 31. Go back to verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. This is Matthew 13, verse 31. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. It becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. See, the mystery of the kingdom is that the kingdom came, but how did it come? It came like a mustard seed. It didn't come with a military coup. It came as a mustard seed. One day, in a future day, it will be a huge and mighty tree. But the mystery is that the kingdom has come into the world without the cataclysmic transformation most people expected. The kingdom is here, but the kingdom's a mustard seed. But one day, it'll be a tree, and it'll fill all of creation, and all the birds will come and nest in it. There is an already but also a not yet in the kingdom. So, Matthew 6, this is the final passage, then we'll be done. Matthew 6 and verse 10. We'll return to the actual verse, the question raised. I actually think our, our more nuanced understanding of Jesus' kingdom, that it is in some sense already, but it is in some sense not yet. Our nuanced understanding of Jesus' kingdom um, can even be brought into our understanding of this verse, and I think helps us understand what it means. Matthew 6 and verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a sense in which Jesus has always been king. Even previous to Jesus' first coming, he came from heaven. He came from the Father's right hand. He came as king. He came with the authority already. Jesus has always been king, but when he arrived the first time, he became a king in a way he wasn't before. He began to assert his kingship. When Jesus came, God's rule over, over men and, and over creation began to break in in new and special ways. Jesus' kingdom is inaugurated at his coming. But Jesus' prayer seeks for even more than what has already happened at Jesus' coming. There is still a forward look to this prayer, and I think a forward look from our perspective. We are to pray for God's kingdom to infiltrate the world to the extent that God's will is done on earth every bit as much as it is done in heaven. So that raises the question, how is God's will done in heaven? How perfectly, how completely, how reverently is God's will observed in heaven? Well, if you look at the scenes in Revelation, it's done perfectly. It's done completely. God is glorified in a way that fits him. And as we look around our world right now, is that the case? Is God's will being done on earth as well as it is in heaven? I don't know anyone who would argue that it is. Now, I am told that grammatically those two statements, one, your kingdom come, and two, your will be done on earth as in heaven, those two statements are parallel, which is they describe the same thing in a different way or two aspects of the same thing. In other words, what it looks like for God's kingdom to come is for God's will to be done, which makes sense. How do you know someone's in charge? Well, when people are doing what he says. So when God's will is being done, it is a sign that the kingdom has arrived there. What Jesus is saying we should pray about is that our great concern is for that to happen and to continue to happen. 
it's begun to happen in our own lives. Our great prayer is that the rule of God that has gained hold over our lives will gain more hold over our lives and then make further inroads into as much as God's earth as humanly possible. I believe we are still in a position today where Matthew 6.10 is still called for as a prayer. I do not think Jesus gave this prayer that his disciples would only be allowed to pray for about the next three years. And then the church is established and then don't pray that anymore. I don't think there was a termination point of three years on this prayer. I think it's one for us to pray until Jesus returns. Jesus' kingdom has already arrived in the person of Jesus. It's taken hold of our lives. We are living as if Jesus is king because he is. But not all creation is doing that. Jesus' kingdom has not imposed itself on the world like it one day will. When Jesus returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. That is the consummation of the kingdom. That is what God's people are ultimately longing for and praying for. Think of it in these terms. this This occurred to me just this afternoon, but think of it in these terms. Maybe we could say we were in a position similar to the Israelites of the time of Ezra. So remember the people in Ezra had returned to the promised land after Babylonian captivity. And their return fulfills promises God made of a restoration of his people. You read Jeremiah, you read Isaiah, these passages about my people will be exiled, but then they will be restored. Ezekiel has promises of this. And so they're back in the land. But you remember in Ezra, they look around. When they finally got the temple rebuilt, and they looked around, and they thought to themselves, is this it? This doesn't match the glorious description of Ezekiel's restored temple. We read all that stuff in Ezekiel. We heard Ezekiel preach about the great restoration, the glorious restoration. We look around and we say, is this what God meant? They looked around at how small they were and how powerless they were, and they said, is this it? And when you keep reading in prophets like Zechariah, the restoration prophets, the answer that visionary prophets like Zechariah give is, no, we have not exhausted the great promises of God about the restoration of Israel. God did restore you. He has done done something. He has established something, but he's not yet done all that he will do. That's a storyline at the very end of the Old Testament. God's begun to make good on his promises, but he has not yet done all that he will do. And so with us, Jesus has come. He has redeemed us. He has taught us. He has enlivened us. But we still look around at a world that has fallen, that is evil. There are still many who are allowed to blaspheme the king. There are weeds growing up alongside the wheat. And we say to ourselves, is this it? This is the whole kingdom? This is everything the king hoped to accomplish? And if you read the visionary prophecy of the New Testament, Revelation, the answer the end of Revelation gives is no. This isn't all God's plans to do. Because there is still a future day on which future day of the Lord on which God will make good on every promise he ever made when Jesus' kingdom will be utterly undeniable when every inch of the universe will be reclaimed for the God who made it. That's what I think we should be thinking about when we read Jesus instruct us to pray, thy kingdom come. And our response to that prayer, should we hear it, should be the same as John's at the end of Revelation. Amen. Come quickly, Lord. So, that's a huge subject. I don't know if I've done justice to it. I almost certainly haven't. But that's my take on it. You may have other thoughts. I'm happy to hear them. Um, 
but thank you for your attention. Maybe there's someone here that needs to come and to submit themselves to King Jesus. That's been the theme of both sermons today, that Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord. We are a people, his people, who act like it, who listen to him in all things, who revere him, who obey him, who worship him. Maybe there's someone who needs to repent of the rebellion against the king. He stands ready to forgive right now as we stand and sing. Him need never fear. Yes, he will pass, will pass over you. When I see the blood, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over.